Bienvenidos a Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Vaness, and every week I sit down for a, I try to make it 30 minutes. It usually ends up being 40 minutes. Sometimes it's an hour, sometimes it's 29. I am, you know, I never was a timetician, so sorry. Uh, with a brilliant excerpt to learn all about something that makes me curious. This week, I'm curious about the world of sex trafficking in the United States. That's why I sit down with journalist and activist Noor Tagore. And also, you guys, let me just say this. Nora is the most incredible woman. And when you see this episode, like I am doing this intro, like not in the same room because I couldn't stop talking to her for so long. And so we actually got like ran out of the studio because I talked through all of our time for me to do the intro. But most stunning person, follow her Instagram, follow the work she's doing. I think she's one of the most amazing Americans I've ever met in my whole life. And I just love her. Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Vaness. Um, so excited to welcome gorgeous Nora Tagori. And I nailed that pronunciation, Totally right? nailed it. Thank God. Oh my gosh, that was great. Can we talk about the universal, all-knowing gaze that lives in your eyes? Like, I feel like... <laughs> Like, I feel like you were seeing me before, but ever since I said, welcome to getting curious, like, I feel like it, I'm seeing. Are the, we like locking eyes? Or I'm like seeing the future president of the United States or something. <laughs> like, what is the going on, girl? That is a, that is a gaze that could win votes. Really? Yes. Tell it to my, these are my dad's eyes. Oh my God. Oh, is it, wait, but we love our dad. Yeah. Yeah. He's fierce. He's, yes, definitely he, Tell fierce. us about, tell me about your dad. Because you're a first generation, gorgeous Libyan American. Wow. Yeah. You really know. Uh, I, I did. I do. She does pre-research. No. <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's a thing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. My dad's amazing. Both of my parents are. So my dad uh, came here when he was 27, came to the States when he was 27 years old um, and did the From whole, like Tripoli? From no. Tripoli or Benghazi? Wow. I should know exactly where he came from. Not my bad. I did not. Or I did not even mean to. Whatever. You know, whichever. I, I, just, it's I was like, just proud of myself for knowing that Tripoli was in, in Libya. Libya right? All, yeah. yeah. Oh, but in Libya. Libya. Yeah. Uh, Wow, is people are going to be me? so happy that we're talking is about this. Is it weird this. for me to say it with that pronunciation? It's like when you're like... No, talk- I appreciate it if oh, you say it. Okay, because yeah. sometimes when I'm speaking Spanish or like if I'm like, you know, because I speak Spanish, like kind of okay, but like if I'm... Just because I speak Spanish doesn't mean when I'm talking about Taco Bell, I'm all like, oh, can I have a chicken quesadilla? You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm like, can I have a chicken quesadilla, please? Like, I appreciate that. Also, I think my mom just texted me where my dad... He, he came here from... Benghazi when he was 26. Uh, which is the, the for American people, Benghazi, Benga- honey. Yeah. yeah but, but how do I say it in a gorgeous Libyan accent? Benghazi. Benghazi. Wait, in Libya, do you guys, do we speak, do we speak Libyan? You speak Arabic with a Libyan dialect, which is, has its own like tone and in, in fluctuation, inflection, and uh, has like a lot of slang words. So we were, we were at war with Italy. And so a lot of the cultural like ways of saying words have like some Italian words. Oh, that's interesting. So, and, and, and a lot of like Arab countries have this, right? So like Morocco and Algeria have like French influence. Libya has Italian influence. That's interesting. Yeah. But I'm sorry that there was like beef going on. Yeah, there was definitely beef going on. But still? when there's beef. Oh, yeah. No, not still. But when there's beef going on. A well, lot there of- is a, a little bit with like the migrant situation yeah, and there's that and they have like that surging right in Italy that's being because you know what really pisses that's actually a good point yeah but you know what really pisses me off about that and about us um well one thing I because I, I need to throw stones like closer in my own house like being America but like it grinds my gears that and I talk about this a lot but like we have a hand to play and responsibility to take about the migrant crisis going on in Central America coming into America because, like, that was a lot of the Reagan administration and, like, a lot of, like, messed up policies that, like, no one talks about. So we had to take responsibility for some of those things. You know what I mean? And there is a humanitarian crisis that we need to help out on. Like, we help create that. Plus, there's a racist immigration system that's, like, all flourishing up in here now that also people don't talk about. Because it's like, well, get in line. What line? There isn't a line. How are you supposed to check out of the damn grocery store if there isn't a checkout line, honey? You just take the groceries and you leave, honey. You got to eat. You know what I mean? That is, uh, that's like one of those things that even when we get into conversations with people about it, just talking about immigration, I feel like it's, it's something that doesn't register. Like, oh my gosh, there's a lot of conversations I can talk. I'm not going to say them on air, but, um, just there's like a lack of understanding when it comes to talking about immigration because we don't really own our own history and, what our country was founded on and the basis that it was founded yes. on. And then we also like to shy away from taking responsibility for messes that we've created and therefore like let go of. Um, and that that happens a lot. My dad and I were just having this like fight about 
H.W. because he was like, oh, I love the tradition of like the presidential transfer power. And I was like, what about it? Like, what part of the traditions do we love celebrating? I was like, was it the genocide of like the people that we took over? Like when we came to this country that we don't talk about? Like, is it which part of the tradition? And he was like, that's not what I'm talking about. And he got so upset. And I'm like, I'm not unpatriotic for saying these things. Like, I'm aware of like what we've done. I think that if you don't, like, that's what we talked about, like in Nazi Germany, like if you don't talk about it, like it repeats itself. So you have to talk about history or it repeats itself. And yeah. how are we supposed to like stop making the same mistakes if we don't talk about it? Yeah, no, it's it's definitely a thing. Like it's a, something that has like even haunted my own personal family. Well, yeah, I mean, but what I was saying about Italy in reference to that, because like I didn't know that Italy was like fighting in Libya, but there's so much Western influence in like Middle Eastern countries that have created so much carnage and violence right. that then when people are trying to escape to safety and then it's like, well, you can't come here. Well, it's like Italy and a lot of Europe had things to do with creating the instability. The colonization and the yeah. yeah. And so people, it's like, I don't think people are not ever inherently bad, honey. Like we're just trying to like feed the fam, feed the cats, go to church, go to temple, go to synagogue, whatever, you know, whatever. Like just, we're yeah. all just trying to live. Every Yeah. I mean, it's, but I think that it's so funny that we're even starting the conversation with talking about this because it's something that like, especially with my own personal family, like I never actually end up talking about, but, um, but there are so many aspects of it that we don't look at. Like, I know president Reagan is like somebody who is always celebrated and you mentioned him and immigration. And I, I remember hearing stories with like when he bombed Libya half of like my like a huge chunk of my mom's family was killed in the building and my mom's family was here in the states and they found out by watching CNN and seeing like the dead bodies of their family members and then they called their family members in Libya and were like hey is everything okay and the people in Libya didn't know that their own family members had died until my family here saw it on television because it wasn't on the TV there yeah yeah so it's a whole thing so there's, I mean, Eckhart Tolle talks a lot about like pain body of certain culture or just like not certain cultures, just pain bodies of cultures. Like, you know, there's like a pain body for queer people. There's a pain body for Muslim people. There's a pain body. But then there's also ones like for countries. Like it's not like, it's not just like religion or sexual orientation that have pain bodies. It's like, it's this idea of like a pain body. But I think one thing that's interesting about you is, is that even though you've experienced this pain body and you've experienced like because there's like Islamophobia, there's like lady phobia, like there's like sexism. There's so many phobias that you've had to face as like an American Libyan first generation woman. Comma, you've just taken all that and single axled that. Actually, how dare I say single axle? You've a triple axled that <laughs> into a gorgeous foundation, honey. You're like helping people, you're advocating for people, you're doing the literal most. Which I think is really incredible. Thank you. You have so many reasons that you could be, you know, I like to say I'm like gay as hell, mad as fuck, you know, because that was like one of the um, things on the posters in, the, in that gorgeous women's march and I, that always stuck with me. But I have lots of reasons that I could be super mad. You really got reasons that you could yeah. be so mad. <laughs> and you have taken that and turned it into something that is like aggressively positive and helpful. Oh, my gosh. I love that you even noticed that and said it that way because all of that is very intentional with what I do. Um, One thing that I talk about and I've been talking about a lot more lately is I believe in finding and defining your purpose by combining the things that pain you with your skill set and your talents. So if for me, like misrepresentation of marginalized communities or people experiencing homelessness or violence against women are the things that pain me, then I'm going to use my skill set and my talents as a storyteller and a person with a platform to then serve those communities. And that's essentially what like I have found fulfillment in, right? So like every single day, the things that I do, I ask myself, is it serving my purpose? And if it is, then great. And if it isn't, then I I try to make intentions around why I'm doing what I'm doing and I'm I'm hyper aware of it. And I also believe in like turning your victim story into your hero story. And so when you (laughs) – That is major. Also really quick just because you're saying so many gorgeous things and I pontificated so much at the beginning of this that I didn't like – I was talking too much. I didn't get to let you shine. But now I have to like slow that down because you just said so much shining $17 things in a row that we have to – So one thing that I just heard you say is that like – it's almost like you have like a mission or like brand statement like for your life. And yeah. like and if what you're doing isn't working towards that, you kind of like let it 
fall by the wayside. So you just, you're well, not by the wayside in a bad way, but you're like, oh, this isn't serving my gorgeous, like overall mm-hmm. intention or purpose. So like what, you know, what am I doing it for? Like, can you tell us what your gorgeous overall intention and purpose is? Like, what is it? What's, what's your brand statement? What is it? So I, that's, so, that's like a very deep question. I think that I always, it's a lot of things, but one is trying to break barriers through storytelling on any type of platform, right? Whether it's radio and podcasting, whether it's documentaries, whether it's speaking, whether it's clothing, um, as long as I'm like breaking a, a barrier and then building an understanding where there's fear. So if people are unfamiliar with each other's experiences and therefore are afraid of each other and therefore perpetuate negativity and hate and animosity towards each other, then I try to find a fundamental commonality something that even if it's like your love for ice skating and or your love for a sports team, right? And being able to bring people together towards that so that you can build on that. Um, I had an instance where I went into a school in South Dakota and I was uh, speaking there. I was asked to speak there. And I asked the person who had booked me, like, why did you bring me out here? It was just so random. And it ended up not being very random, but um, she ended up telling me like, well, our school's kind of dealing with this like white supremacy problem. So we kind of thought maybe you could help fix it. And I remember thinking to myself like, what? Yeah. I just had a very visceral. I was like, what? Like you're going to go, you're like. I was so afraid. Yeah. And I had never, at that year I'd like been touring. When was this? This was, uh, this is 2016. So this is two years ago. And also, I know it's like, you know, never ask a lady her age, Henty, but like I think I just turned 25. Like you are a young woke queen. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm, but I, you've I, also I, had no choice. I mean, you're a first generation like Libyan American woman living in this time, like growing up in the age that we've grown up in. I honest to God. Like, I mean, these episodes never come out in chronological order. So, like, sorry, you guys. But, like, so I just posted this thing about Lipton yesterday about this, like, gorgeous, like, detox tea, which, like, apparently yeah. there's a lot of, like, very visceral reactions around, like, the term, like, detox because they conflated it with, like, flat tummy tea when really this is just, like, a green tea that has, like, dandelion and nettle and grapefruit <laughs> in it. And, like, people were, like, literally doing, like, essay dissertations on, like, Rainforest safety, how Lipton agriculture or gets her stuff. Uh, Lipton's owned by Nestle, Monsanto. Like, like, like everyone's fighting over like who owns Lipton, honey. Doing, you know, just doing the most on these comments and about diet culture and like all of this stuff and like really like demonizing me for like having the nerve to like post about this. I'm so sorry. Oh my god, it was so intense. Like people were like so shook by this, right? So be and most of the people that were shook are people that are dealing with eating disorders and are very affected by the the branding and marketing of diet stuff. And I understand that in those comments. And a lot of that was a fear in their own thing, but they didn't even read my comment. They literally saw one thing and went off. Like they, not even my comment, but like the caption oh, about welcome it. to my world. But so this is what I'm, yes. So what I'm trying to say for you though is, is that like as a young woman gr- born in the United States with like in the age of like 9-11 and the demonization of Islamic of mus of the Islamic faith, like, and of these countries. Cause like growing up in rural America, honey, after 9-11, like, People were like, myself included, like they're like, there's weapons of mass destruction. And we were like, get them. Like, you know, like I was like, you know, 13. And I was like, totally like, I thought that was, that's what we thought. Yeah. I've we, had so many people that bosses and like coworkers, friends who have said the exact same thing to me. We did not get it. Like we did not. Like, but we, I didn't get either. I was like, I was confused. Like I, I so, was, but that's what I'm saying for these people that were shook off some detox yeah. tea. I can't imagine like how yeah. shook you must be reading things about what has happened in Libya and like what has happened to the people of Libya. And like for you, when you see a news story about like an, yet yeah, another, you know, executive ordered, you know, bomb in oh, some yeah. country. Travel bans. Yeah. That's not just like some other, like, you know, when I read that, it's like this other like tragic upsetting thing that happened, but it's like, I go about my day. I feel like it's, but when I read something about like, you know, HIV AIDS or like queer marginalization, it hits closer to home. These things like must hit so incredibly close to you all the time. Like I, that is like what I was just tripping on. That is just not, it's very unfortunate. I think there's like a, there's like a community trauma that it's, it, 
we're doing a lot of reflecting here, clearly, because this is something that like is just a thing, right? And I don't sit and ponder and sit and because like, you're too of- busy helping people and shining light <laughs> and being in a, and being a gorgeous example of what, like really, like what faith is, like well, which which essentially is like to us, especially if you're a Muslim, is like doing things in service. And that's, I think, going back to your point of like, well, what is your mission state? What is your purpose? Um, a close friend of my husband and I, his name is Idris Sandu, and he he says we are four purpose entities living in the service of humanity. And that resonated a lot with me because I realized, oh, wait, that's what it is. If you are living in service, if everything that you're doing is towards service, and service isn't just like volunteering and donating money and doing like your community service hours once a year and then checking it a box and leaving. It's always putting other people like on the top of your mind before yourself and not like in and putting yourself ahead of where you see yourself. Right. So like being good to yourself and serving yourself so that you can serve other people and so Mm. that you can serve your community. And what that essentially means is seeing how much you can build from building others around you. And that's what's like, that's what's so true to to me. And that's what's so true to like how I've been able to see what success actually means. Because the more you grow, the lonelier, like it's lonely at the top. And there's a lot of times where like you find it hard to trust people. You find it hard to figure out what it is you truly want. But what I've realized is like the thing that makes me feel the most whole, that makes me feel the best is when I'm able to do something for other people. And in turn, you're doing something for yourself because when you build other people around you, you end up building yourself. You like, and I think a lot of people have this, um, this like misconception of what service is because they think that you're just giving and not getting anything. But, but we have to change the way that we think about it because giving is never a loss. And the second you think about it that way, because if you're going to donate, like if you're going to give $10 to a person and then think to yourself, I lost $10, then you're not actually exuding the fullest potential of what that moment was. But if you're giving $10 to a person and then see how you as a human being are going to flourish and how that person is going to flourish and how your future is going to flourish, because I'm a big believer in like karma essentially, then then you are growing as a human being and you're building those around you. It's kind of the law of scarcity versus the law of abundance. Like just because you give someone like doesn't mean that there's less for you to get. Totally. You know, you're actually like abundance is, it's the law of abundance versus scarcity, honey. So so in those gorgeous $17 sentences that you were saying, so essentially, honey, a quick recap is, is that your mission statement is to be in service and to bridge the gap of like fear through storytelling, um, which is love those mission statements. But there was something else that you said after that that was like really fierce that is escaping me when you were saying, it was like, what were you saying when I stopped you? Do you remember? Oh, the South Dakota story. It was another time when I interrupted you even before that. (laughs) It was, it was like, it was like, cause you were like, you were talking about like what your mission statement was and then you were saying something else. I was like, oh my God, that's like so much amazing stuff. But yeah, so what happened with the South Dakota story? Okay, so let me tell you because this is one of my favorite stories. Um, Oh, also you guys, this isn't going to be 30 minutes. Sorry, Kate, thanks, bye. You're welcome. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, so right, I got to South Dakota. It's funny because my mom and my husband are here and um, they they were I was calling them during this time because I was so terrified so I get into the green room and were you alone I was alone you're a brave honey you like you are a brave honey you're going to South Dakota like no one was gonna come with me to not only that that entire year I need to talk to your momager about this this is like (laughs) no 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 honey if I was going there honey no 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 my someone's got to be with me honey like yeah you're right you need to have like protection honey (laughs) absolutely like well, that I'll year, come with you next time. If you, you want to come with me? If you go to some pl- – yes, queen, I cannot be letting you Because I have, no. like, some places that I'm going next that you can Or I will just, to. like, send you security and write it off because you're a national treasure. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, oh, my God. Like, And even if you can't – actually, I donated to all these political campaigns this year, and then I realized afterwards that those, like, aren't write-offs. No Like, way. I thought it was – yeah, it's not. But then – I think we kind of cleaned house. Like all the ladies that I donated to did really, 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 really oh, well. Awesome. So it doesn't even, so it's like fine. So it's, it's, like, worth it's so it. worth it. So yeah. So even if I couldn't write off your protection, honey, it's still worth it. You know, it's that whole abundance this versus so scarcity. You know what I mean? So it's abundance fine. Abundance versus scarcity. Yeah, it's fine. Oh man. It's, like, it's not less for me, honey. It's more for all of humankind, <laughs> honey. 
So but anyway, so you get to South Dakota. It's 2016. Okay, wait, is it, it what time of year is it? Is so it, it was during during the, election, like, the honey. elections, right? It's October. So, They're first back to school, honey. It, yeah. Actually, yeah. And so that entire time, so that entire year during the, during like all the 2016 campaign election, um, I was touring the Midwest by myself and, and it wasn't something that I really like shared publicly. It was just, and the thing is I wasn't going to schools and like talking about religion, talking about being Muslim. I literally was going there to talk about like breaking barriers through storytelling and identity and building community. And I happened to show up wearing a hijab and most of the people listening to my talks like had never seen a woman with her head covered. And so it was like a very profound experience that like, I don't know why I didn't talk about as much, but I just didn't. And it was something that I did very personally. And so anyway, I show up to South Dakota. I'm sitting in the green room and the girl who booked me is like, oh my gosh, this is going to be great. 200 people are showing up. And so in my head, she and then she leaves. I'm sitting by myself and I'm like, in my head, okay, 200 people, that's not a lot of people. It'll be fine. I'll be like, I'll do great. And I, and I call my mom. Oh, it was because the, the day before there was like a domestic terrorist attack, like somebody in New York had ramped through people. Mm -hmm. It was that situation. Um, and so I was really nervous and I call my mom, my heart is like beating really fast. My hands are shaking and I call her and I'm like, mama, I just, I, I just want to say I love you. I don't know. I just have a really bad feeling. Something just doesn't feel right. Uh, and my mom's like on the phone like freaking out. Like, Nude, why are you telling me this? Like, why did you go? She's like, leave. Yeah, and she like told – she told like my family members. People were texting me like praying – like I'm praying for you, whatever. This will be great, inshallah, God willing. Oh, but like, I love – I love inshallah, honey. I learned that in hair school, honey. I learned how to do hair like with all these like Somalian refugees in Minneapolis because like that's where no. I went to school. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and, so you know inshallah. Yeah, uh-huh. My girl, my girl Ayan, like I loved her so much. Like she taught me all these – she was like inshallah. I was like, okay, girl, I love that. Yeah. yeah. So we say it – like we say it for every. Yeah, she's a gorgeous little phrase. I love it. Yeah. That, oh, oh, yeah. I shouldn't say so she because it's like – I love that phrase. I love it. Mm-hmm. So – um, I ca- I'm calling my mom and she's really nervous. And while I'm on the phone with my mom, the girl comes back in and she's super excited. And she's like, 600 people showed up. And I'm like, what? It's a small great. school. <laughs> You're right? Great. I'm like, uh, and she's like, yeah, we're just going to take a couple minutes. We have to like put out more chairs and we have to move the walls and we have to do all of this stuff. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, 600 people. oh my God, they're all going to hate me. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And I'm freaking out, right? And so I, so I go on stage and, and she's an auditorium. It's yeah. Or she's like a gym. It's like an it's like a talking space. I don't know. It's like a sta- theatery type thing. It's an There's auditorium, honey. Yeah. Yes. Auditorium. And in, in my head, auditorium's like ginormous thousands. She's like people. a school assembly place. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, of course. Okay. <sighs> wow. Like my I'm getting like tight just thinking about Ugh. this. So then, so I look out into the crowd, and it is. Like white people, as far as the eye can see, yes. like and people who are sitting, you guys can't see me right now. So I'm spreading my legs and I'm I'm crossing my arms and I'm leaning back with like a mean mug on my face because that's what I see. And there's like maybe there's like one hijabi who's like sitting in the back and like one black person. And the hijabi, uh, the person who booked me, told me that she had been harassed recently, and so that's part of why I was coming out. So I'm sitting there and I'm really nervous and I'm giving my speech and in the middle of my speech. I start tearing up at a part where like I could brush it off as me tearing up, but that's not why I was crying. I was crying because I was legitimately so scared mm. and I kind of freeze up and I end up doing this activity. Um, I had just recently come back from a self-care retreat where I learned this activity. Um, if you really knew me, you would know. And so I got people to pass out index cards and pens and I asked people to write if you really knew me statements. And I decided to close out my speech by reading them out loud. So I get like a hundred of these statements and I begin reading them out loud. And I like start crying while I'm reading them because like nine out of 10 of them were about loneliness. If you really knew me, you would know I collect stuffed animals so that I feel less alone. If you mm. really knew me, you would know that like I don't know if I'm worth living like if you really knew me, you would know. And it was all like loneliness or abuse or um, like people's deepest, darkest secrets. It was an anonymous activity. And people came up to me afterwards like thanking me. And I remember thinking like in that very moment that I had judged everybody else, that like I did the thing that I thought everybody was doing to me. And maybe they did. But in that very moment, 
I felt alone and so did everybody else. And we had this thing in common and we were able to like bring people together. And it was a really profound and beautiful moment because oftentimes like when you're hearing stories about like Muslim women or minorities and stuff like it's always the other way around. It's always like, oh, you were judged, you were stereotyped, you were victimized, which all of these things happen. But in that moment, I am owning up to like what I did wrong. And I went out there and I assumed that they were all going to hate me and that I was alone and that I I put myself in this position. But we all learned that we were all feeling the same thing. And I remember on stage, I told them like, this was what I was feeling. And I walked away from that moment thinking to myself, oh my gosh, like, there really has to be more compassion and understanding. Like there really has to be, that has to be compassion and understanding through storytelling and getting people to open up is truly like the way that we are going to alleviate this pain that we're experiencing as a whole. Which really makes me think, you know, so much of like why the religion of Islam really um, demonized demonized in in this country. Well, my stepdad always taught me, war always has to do with money. Well, in the Middle East, there's lots of money, honey. There's oil. So, of course, like, there, like it's power. And in order to control people, you have to, like, divide and you have to conquer. And that's what governments do. They divide and they conquer. And what we have to do as people is, like, educate and reach past the headlines. And ask the people that you see who are Muslim. Like, stop. My biggest thing is stop learning about my faith. From, like, old white guys on TV who don't love us, who don't yeah. like us, who think that we're horrible people, who have never spoken to a Muslim before but swear that they've read the entire Quran. Like, talk to your Muslim neighbors. We love being asked questions. I love when people are like, oh, why do you wear that? Or why do you pray five times a day? Or why do you do whatever? Because the second you ask me those questions, and I had it. I grew up in a very conservative, very white town. Like, we were the only Muslims in school. I was, like, in first grade, I walked Where was in that? La Plata, Maryland, Southern Cute. Maryland. Yeah. I was born in West Virginia. Then I lived in Birmingham and Selma, Alabama. And then I grew up in Southern Maryland. So like, so like when people tell me like to go back to where I came from, I'm just like, you really want to send me back to Huntington, West Virginia? Like, I don't want to go there. In Birmingham, honey, I worked so hard to get like, no, I will not go back. (laughs) Like not me, not now. My mom actually put on the hijab in Alabama when I was like three years old. Like she, she, yeah, she's like the real rock star. She did what because I, I didn't even put on hijab when I was where where I grew up. I didn't put it on until we moved right outside of Washington D.C., which was super diverse and like everybody was embracing themselves. So I don't I love that. I didn't even have that strength. Yeah, but I, the, I I was just trying to say that a little bit ago that I think so much of like why we demon or like why each other is demonized. It is like this whoever is in power, like whoever like the in power group is, no mm-hmm. matter what country they come from. You got to like demonize people to make people scared so that you can like control people. It's all about totally. like money and control and power and stuff. And if we could all just like, you know, compassionize each other or whatever, like then we would see like, oh my God, it's really these, you know, government people. But it's also media representation. And that too. Like, oh my gosh, if I tell you like. And- but there's some sort of like, there's some sort of relationship going on right there that like, because I'm not in like, you know, I'm not a professor, like I'm just a hairstylist who like. Rose to who unscripted TV. Well, I'm yes, but who rose to like, unscripted TV fame? Who likes to read the news? But like, if I was a professor of like media and government and like power and like you know controlling the masses and stuff, like there's something going on there. I don't know exactly what she is. And also now this is like literally 27 minutes. So we are going to take a really quick commercial break. So like just two uh-huh. seconds. We're going to be. Honey, take a moment and just think to yourself, describe yourself in one word. Are you simple, sophisticated, or adventurous? However you dress, the stylist at Stitch Fix can help you find your favorite piece. Stitch Fix is an online personal styling service that delivers your favorite clothing, shoes, and accessories directly to you. First, you complete a style profile. Then an expert personal stylist will send you a hand-picked box of items based on your preferences. They even have men's and kids' boxes, too, which we love, honey. Let's get everyone, uh, you know, taken care of. Plus, I'm sure you can mix and match if they aren't, you know, in the dark ages. What if you want something from both? 
With no subscription required, you can pick between automatic shipments or only getting new pieces on demand. Shipping, exchanges, and returns are always free. Plus, the $20 styling fee is automatically applied towards anything you keep from your box. We love our Stitch Fix personal stylists. I can customize my own gorgeous preferences, whether it's sizing, brand, or budget. Once you finish the style quiz and set up your ideal number of deliveries, honey, you'll receive everything from jewelry to shoes to bags, all to go with your hand-picked outfits. I love that. Get started today at stitchfix.com slash JVN and get an extra 25% off when you keep everything in your box. That's S-T-I-T-C-H fix.com slash JVN for an extra 25% off when you keep everything in your box. Support for today's show comes from Rakuten. Rakuten is a free member-based loyalty program that lets you earn up to 40% cash back at over 2,500 stores. It's perfect for all your back-to-school shopping needs. Get cash back on everything from school supplies to new clothes at some of your favorite retailers like Macy's, Forever 21, Walmart, and more. And don't worry, it's always free. No gimmicks, no points to redeem. Better yet, Rakuten is so simple and easy to use. Simply go to Rakuten.com, click on the retailer you're looking for to activate the cash back, and then shop as normal. You'll earn a percentage of every purchase you make up to 40% cash back. Then, every three months, members will be paid in the form of a check or via PayPal. Sign up today at Rakuten.com. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N.com. If there is something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQ matters, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment and get help at your own time and at your own pace. Anything you share is confidential and it's so convenient. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. If for some reason you are not happy with your counselor though, you can request a new one at any time and for no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Getting curious with Jonathan Van Ness listeners can get 10% off your first month with the discount code JVN. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash JVN. Then simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with the counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash JVN. Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. We are really just going through so much, but this is what I want to do. Okay, that tell was a me lot of broad to. stroking, and I love that. But what I want to talk more about now is is your gorgeous foundation. Um, our guest right now, Nora Tagore. We've been talking about all Hi. things Nora, who you are, where you yes. come from, all of this stuff. But what's like your day to day, and what's a gorgeous foundation, and what does your family do? Okay. Ooh, all of the questions. Okay, so well, we spent the first half like just re- we. Yeah, we just had. Ge- yeah, I hope everybody get, enjoyed that. Uh, I think they will. Okay, I hope you loved it because it was very genuine and authentic. And no, I was great. obsessed okay. with all of that. Great. So. Um, all right. What do I do day to day? So I'm a journalist and speaker. I have a... So you graduated high school and... Yeah, I graduated high school at six... I I started college at 16. I went to journalism school and I was like, oh, I'm going to be... When I put on the hijab, I had already... I always wanted to be Oprah, essentially. Like, I wanted to be a storyteller. Question. Mm. What's the deal with, um, like... How does hijab work? Like, is it like when you're like a baby girl, you don't wear one, but then when you get engaged, you start wearing one or something? So, so in the most literal context, it's like when you hit puberty, you are supposed to wear it if that's what you choose to do. Um, But let's talk about how men and women both have a hijab. Um, Just women's hijab is like something that you can see more. And you, um, you wear it. One for like, mo- like th- the religious reason is like to embrace more of a modest standpoint, but also how you interpret it or how I've interpreted it is like, if I while I wear this, I one remember and intentionally live for something that's bigger than myself. So I realize that like this isn't everything, and that what I have to say matters more than anything else. Um, in today's world, when I'm wearing it, I wear it because not only does it gives me give me strength in my identity, which is something I struggled with my entire life, but it also is me wearing my religion on my sleeve and proudly. And I do it in service of other people so that they can also ask and 
and engage and like be like, oh, wait, this is what a Muslim American is like. Like there are 3.3 million Muslims in America and that means there's 3.3 million ways to be a Muslim and how people embrace it is totally different and how people dress is totally different and if they choose to put it on, it's totally different. Like you have my sisters in the other room and my mom wears hijab, my 21-year-old sister wears it and she wore it before I did. She wore it when she was 12 and I wore it when I was 16 and my little sister who just turned 13 doesn't wear it. Um, it was never something that like we talked about like in my house really. It wasn't like, oh, you, when are you going to wear it? You should wear it. You should do whatever. Like I recently interviewed my mom and I was like, how did you feel when I put on the hijab? And I thought she was going to give me like, oh, I was so proud of you. I was so whatever. And she was like, honestly, like I didn't think you were going to keep it on. And I didn't really like care. I was like proud of you and a lot of other things, but it didn't matter to me if you put it on or not. Love. Yeah. And I think that's why. And I, and I have to like also mention I recognize, like, mashallah, I have, like, really great parents and I have a great family and I have people who, like, really embraced me being my truest self, whether that was in how I followed my career or how I dressed or how I embraced my religion. It was always, like, from a place of love, guidance, and, like, as long as you have good intentions and you do good to other people, that's all that matters. I I recognize, like, that's not everybody's case. And oftentimes people's like cultures impose on the way that they've practiced Islam. So anything that you see, like for instance, like women not being able to drive in Saudi Arabia, like that is not religious. That is cultural because religiously you are supposed to teach your kids. Like at the time it was like horseback riding and the equivalent of that is driving cars. Like you have to be self-sufficient and independent. That's religious. And that's why it was always frustrating when we would hear news about that because I'm just like the fact that women aren't allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia is wild to me because that's so against what we practice as a religion. Um, there's also a verse in the Quran that literally says like there is no compulsion in Islam. Like you cannot force anybody to do anything. And that's the whole purpose, especially there's if There's no you, compulsion in what? In Islam, in the religion. Oh, cute, gorgeous. Yeah. So there's no compulsion in Islam. So it's like you cannot like compel. Mm-hmm. Got Somebody, it. You can't you can't force anybody to do anything. But so often people pick and choose what in whatever book that they're religious oh, yeah. is like what they want to enforce. Every they, religious text. Yeah. Like if you were to, to pull verses from the Bible or the Torah and interpret them in a violent way, like t- there's plenty of times to do that. A hundred percent. And there's also so I mean, if you assigned like if you associated like every religion with their most like extreme Oh, yeah. Branch. Like, it's, and two, truly, American, like, white American terrorism is so much the biggest threat of, like, everything. Well, it was the highest, like, the most so domestic much the big, terrorist yes, attacks were done. So yeah. much the biggest threat always will be. Like, I'm so much more scared of our, for, or of our, the Second Amendment or whatever. That, like, I'm so much more scared of that. that. Like, so much more scared of that. I mean, we're not, like, this government doesn't even, not only this government, but truthfully, as long as we're holding everyone accountable, like, the Obama administration, the Bush administration, the Clinton administration before that, the Reagan before that, they don't allow the CDC to even study what gun deaths there are. And, Mm. I mean, they're not even allowed to study. I mean, so all you can do is, like, go through the records and see how many murders there were. But, like, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, like, isn't even allowed to study, like, gun violence. Like, because of, so... There is so much, like, you know, it, it, the difference between, like, governmental enforcing of things and yeah. power and then, like, religion is such a thing. And especially here in this country with, like, you know, Christianity. Because, like, we were – this country was founded on, like, religious freedom. And we are – like, even when you talk about, like, gay marriage and DOMA, like, in the day. And uh, there's just so much, like, bastardization and, like – you know, but, but I love someone who has an illegitimate father. So I'm not even going to say that. There's just so much fucked up interpretation of all of the gorgeous religious texts. It's just like cray cray. And we're just trying to live our best lives. We're all trying to. But live our I best got lives. off track and I love, but really what I want to know is like, how did you take this experience and turn it into yeah. the foundation that you guys did? Because also, too, I'm just going to say this really quickly and I'm obsessed with this. So when I interviewed uh, Mara Kiesling from the Center, National Center for Transgender Equality, she was saying that like one thing that her center does is they, like when the Muslim or when the travel ban went into effect, like they were like out there so hardcore, like because, because her community is so marginalized and threatened and discriminated against. Like she has to be on the front lines of protecting like every other marginalized community. And I think that's something, I mean, I just got the chill saying that, but I feel like you have done that in your foundation. Like you are taking what has been done to you and you're like turning that into a positive thing for other people. Well, that's exactly like how I even was able to tell the stories that I did. So I, 
so I ended up becoming a local news reporter and then realized that my niche, like my strength was building trust with people who didn't have trust with the media and marginalized communities and being able to like pass the mic to them and then give them a platform to share their own stories. Um, which brings us to like my, my latest documentary and like podcast documentary sold in America is like an investigative documentary inside the sex trade. And the reason we were able to talk to so many of the people that we were able to talk to in the way that we did was because there was this trust that we were able to build because I was able to go to people and say, hey, I know what it's like to be misrepresented in the media and have my story, your story taken um, from you. And I'm not going to do that to you. And one of the people, one of like our main what characters- was the na- What was the name? Sold in America. Sold in America. Got yeah. it. So you guys obviously goes without saying- you need to get your investigative journalism self yeah. on and listen to it's it. It's really great. Seek it at work. So it's a podcast. It's a and podcast it's a, and it's a documentary series, three-part documentary is it series. A, where is it available? It's on Hulu. Love. So yeah. get on that Hulu, tweet about it, Instagram about it, yeah. talk all about it. But So tell me more. So, well, so just to touch back on like what we were talking about, one of the characters in um, in the series is a trans-Latina woman named Leia Monadas, and she – was a teacher. She was an art teacher. And while she was transitioning, she said she was pushed out of uh, the school because she was transitioning and she has a master's degree. And she she ended up being in a situation where she felt like the only way that she was able to survive essentially was engaging in survival sex. So she was a sex worker for an amount of time. And she was sharing these stories with me about like how she was almost murdered. Um, And this was outside of DC. Yeah, this was in DC. Yep. And uh, anyway, she had she had talked about this a lot recently because this was um, this was while she was trying they were trying to push for certain decriminalization of sex work, and this was right before FOSTA SESTA passed. Right and before FOSTA, uh, the like end trap stop traf- uh, sex trafficking act that is now harming a lot of sex workers. So, so we were talking about this beforehand, and. Um, there was like a moment where she was sharing the story with me. It was really hard to hear. And she was saying it like as if it was nothing. And I was like, how are you We, how are you talking about it like this? And I had spent time with her a few times before this. And she was like, you know, when, when you've gone through what I've gone through, you're as strong as a rock. And sometimes I feel like I should be in the military. And And we had this moment where like she ended up tearing up and like kind of had like broke down a little bit and was like, we're not – pieces of trash. We're human beings and we don't deserve to be treated this way. And we hugged and stayed in touch. Like we've been in touch way since then. And uh, afterwards we got in a cab and my producer looked at me and was like, I don't know how you always get people to open up to you this way. Like everybody is open to telling you anything. There really needs to be more hijabi journalists out there. And I like laughed and I was like, "There, there are other people in hijab practicing journalism. Like we just don't get hired. Like it's really hard to get hired, especially on camera. And uh, and it was like this aha moment because I was like, this is what I've been trying to tell you. Like if you are a part of a marginalized community and you are a storyteller, you are able to build a lot more trust with other marginalized communities whose stories need to be told because you have sh- a shared experience. And there's the strength that like needs to happen in workplaces, in newsrooms, um, across all industries where we are valuing diversity, diverse storytelling, diverse ways of thought, diverse backgrounds um, as a strength, not to fill a diversity quota, but essentially to build ourselves as a community and to build essentially bridges and not walls. Ugh, which makes so much sense. So tell me about, okay, so there's, I think that your work on sex workers and sex trafficking is, like, really, really, really important. And uh, tell us more about Sold in America and and kind of what uh, specifically with that act and kind of what's going on um, in that world and, like, what you've learned and what people could do to get involved in, in what's happening here. So talking about sex work and sex trafficking 
and the sex trade in the U.S. is a really tough topic. And we wanted to tackle it because the way I started all of this was I, for years, was like, I'm going to do a documentary on sex trafficking in the U.S. because it was a topic I cared about so much. I had gone through my own instances of sexual violence, and I found out about trafficking. And I was like, I, I literally in my head cannot fathom, cannot understand what people are going through if what I went through, which was on a way smaller scale, was just – it was traumatizing. So I – using my formula for living your purpose, um, wanted to tell that story. And when we started on the documentary, we realized there's no way we can tell this story without telling the story of the entire sex trade and talking about harm across the sex trade. And, um, and that goes into talking about exploitation, right? And under exploitation, talking about like our broken government care system, addiction in the U.S., and then talking about survival sex, which happens oftentimes because the United States has a housing crisis and people can't find affordable housing and people have to do what they have to do to be able to have a roof over their head and food on their table. Consensual sex work, which um, in all places in the U.S. is illegal except for certain counties in Nevada. And then legalized sex work, which we went to those counties in Nevada to talk to people who are working in brothels. And so we were able to kind of pull apart like the harm that's being done across all of this and and essentially like investigate why it is the way that it is. And when we did the documentary, it was before FOSTA-SESTA passed, which is the Stop, Stop Sex Trafficking um, Act. And we – it was like – once that passed, everything kind of changed. When because, did that pass again? Um, it may have been in like March or April because the documentary came out in February and then FOSTA has to pass shortly after. And we were in the middle of producing the podcast. So the podcast spinoff essentially is like is a deeper investigation, but it's also like my personal journey of how I covered this and why. And that's what made it unique. And, uh, and so anyway, so the, so we learned like after we spent a day with sex workers at the first sex worker lobby day and talked to them about like essentially how this bill is harming them because what it does is it holds like third party websites accountable for any like prostitution transactions. So like Twitter, Facebook, um, Craigslist, they can all, um, be held accountable for any trafficking that happens, but any trafficking, the way that it was written in the law was like any form of prostitution essentially. Um, and, and people who are engaging in sex work use that for their own safety. And so now because those websites are all taken down and now held they, accountable. And now they're like out on the park. Exactly. Yeah. So Sold in America, sold in America. And, and the, the foundation. foundation. Okay. So Sold in America, if you want to learn more about it, just go listen to the podcast. But we have to learn up. more about it. Definitely listen to more about it. There'll be a link totally. to that in this episode so Aww. that you can just like click right on it. Thank you. Um, but it's really, really important work. So good to listen yeah. to. Um, so good to be a part of. But also tell us about your foundation so, and where we can find yeah, out more about that. You're so lo- – I, I, I appreciate you so much for even bringing this up. So the foundation is called I See You. And – Essentially what it is, is when I was four, when I turned 14 years old, my mom and I came across uh, a woman who ran a shelter for women and children. And we went up to her and we said, what can we do? My mom said that I was just tagging along and she said, what can I do to help? And she said, well, we need a lot of toilet. We need toiletries. We have nothing. So we started doing toiletry drives at school. Eventually they needed like groceries. So we would get their wish list of groceries and we would get groceries. We would get – my mom essentially bought everything that she would buy for our household for them. The same mm. quality of food. Like that's – if you're going to do it, that's how you do it, right? And then we would do like grocery gift cards for families who are in need. And then eventually uh, I remember – actually this was a few years ago. My mom called me. She was so upset because it was like a really brutal winter. And she was like, we cannot see people on the street in these winters and not do anything about it. So then she came up with the concept of building, like making these winter care packages. And this is like over the span of 10 years. So it's been 10 years now we've been doing and this. And I see you still up and running, going strong, So we doing were the just most. passing them out before we came here. Uh, so my mom this past summer launched the foundation called ICU. The reason it's called ICU is because earlier this year we were passing out care packages and we went up to a couple um, and we were like, what is it that you need? 
Because I think that if you're doing service work in that way, you always have to ask people like, what can I do for you? What do you need? And not assume. And they literally just said, we just want to be seen. Like we need to be seen. People do not look at us. People don't see us. And so my mom was like, we need to let them know that we see them. And so she called the foundation, I see you. Mm. And that's, I, ever since I got like a platform on social media, I've always used it to like raise money for these care packages. And so I see you is now an official foundation. We have a bunch of winter care packages in our car that we just pass out. And then my mom now has been doing these full-blown like volunteer events like it's we're trying to essentially scale it nationwide yes and um and And i love that this is gorgeous muslim american women living first generation american women doing so much work for american people so that you can see that yeah people are so giving and so loving and that really good is what is in most people's hearts yeah and this is literally the root of our religion our religion is like its essence is actually service. And my mom always says like, she always talked about the the care packages and the grocery runs. She was like, I feel like, like they're doing more for me than I'm doing for them. And if you think about service that way, if you think about I'm benefiting more, I'm growing more, I'm, I'm gaining more from being a person of service than on the receiving end, then you will always succeed. Nortagori Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your tireless work and your advocacy. I love you so much. And thank you so much for giving me your time. And we appreciate you so much. You guys, there'll be links to all of North social medias. There'll be links to um, Sold in America, to all of your social media links, to ICU Foundation links. And if you want to in- get involved, if you want to donate, do the most. Please get involved with North. Seek her out. Thank you so much for your hard work. Thank you. And thank you guys for listening to Getting Curious. Love you guys. Bye. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Benes. My guest this week was Nora Tagori. You'll find links to Nora's work and socials in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at JBN. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, please give us a gorgeous little review in Apple Podcasts. It's Sashir and Nicole from Best Best Friends. Our podcast has been out for a few months. If you haven't listened to it, you should. We've already asked the big questions in life. Imagine if we could lay eggs. Okay, sure. (laughs) I guess we... Wouldn't that be funny if you could eat from yourself? No, because that's like cannibalism. Not when you eat yourself. What? Hmm? Answer listener questions. Hi, Nicole and Sashir. What happens if Sashir dies first? I mean, I've never thought of it. Well... I would be so sad. <laughs> oh no, Nicole. Nicole. <laughs> I'm not gonna die. Take BuzzFeed quizzes. Let's pick eight foods and we'll give you a sex position to try. Whoa. This is wild. Plus, we bring on other funny best friends to talk about their friendship. I almost wanna cry. I feel, I don't know why that really made me feel emotional, but. It's because <laughs> it's pure to talk about it friendship. It's nice. It's so nice. It's like so rare to like articulate it, but she's always there for me. Like, I, I think she's just somebody who. <laughs> oh, I love this. I love it so much. <laughs> oh my God. It's really sweet. Best Friends with Nicole Byer and Sashir Zameda is new every Wednesday. On Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen. Oh, my God. To it. 